Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Muni Jensen here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And today the topic is Nigeria, Africa's largest economy, one of its top oil producers. Nigeria elected a new president, and the result is controversial to say the very least. The winner is 70-year-old Bola Tinubu, former governor of Nigeria's Lagos state, and a politician who's seen as a wealthy, kleptocratic kingmaker in Nigerian politics. Tinubu competed against leading opposition candidate Atiku Abu Bakar and third-party candidate Peter Obi. The elections were marred by widespread accounts of voter irregularities, sporadic violence at polling stations, disorderly delays, and many other logistical issues. And all this happened in a messy context as Nigeria introduced a cashless economy weeks before the election, resulting in banking runs, closed ATMs, and panic as parents were unable to buy food and the economy ground to a halt. Muni, it's a country I know well and I've traveled to many times, though it's been a while. And 20 years ago, I worked on elections in Nigeria. And I can tell you firsthand that it's a country with a history of botched, disputed elections, allegations of vote selling and bribes. And the recent elections are now again disputed and regional elections have been postponed. February's voting is yet again the subject of scrutiny, allegations of bribes to delegates and party leaders and vote buying. And judging by the current environment, the problem just never goes away. It hasn't gone away, Peter. Nigeria's presidential vote constitutes one of the most closely watched and significant elections of the year. As its largest democracy, and these presidential elections are important for Nigeria, but also important to the region, because stability in this country is a linchpin to stability in the whole region. And they are bolstered by an extractive industry, but have suffered political and economic upheaval since its independence from the UK in 1960. There's multiple ethnic groups and religions separating its people, often very violently, where widespread corruption has prevented the general population to come out of poverty, even with the robust oil production. Inflation has skyrocketed. Terrorism is ongoing with Boko Haram and other extremist groups creating deepened divisions and rising food costs since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and this has happened all over the world, have worsened conditions for the poor, leaving vulnerable people, voters at the center of widespread vote trading. And meanwhile, politics is business as usual. Okay, so the recent elections between the all-progressive Congress and the People's Democratic Party are now officially under scrutiny all over the world. The winner, Bola Tinubu of the APC and an ally of the ruling party, was declared the winner with a small margin, low turnout, and rampant corruption. The country's electoral commission quickly faced allegations of fraud. Tinubu's two competitors have now cried foul. Gubernatorial elections are postponed, allegedly because of glitches in the electronic voting machines that created the need to count by hand. Discontent is rampant with 89% of poll citizens feeling that the country is going in the wrong direction. What a mess in Africa's largest economy. Taya, what do you think? Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So as we've established, Nigeria is Africa's 
uh, biggest economy. It's also Africa's most populous country with more than 220 million people and almost 40% are under 35. So the country has one of the world's largest youth populations with about 64 million people aged 18, between 18 and 35 and a median age of 18. So Despite a huge brain drain that happened in recent years due to, you know, all the things you guys mentioned, but, you know, mostly lack of opportunities and high unemployment, the country still has this huge youth population with really big opportunities. So, you know, the youth did not want Tinubu as their new president. Overwhelmingly, the youth support went to Peter Obi, who's an outsider from the Labour Party, and he really started a whole movement and his followers proudly named themselves the Obedience, which I think is just a really funny um, and clever name. And Lagos is the obedience movement center. And the movement has really sprung out of the ashes of the 2020 and SARS protests, which were a huge anti-police brutality protests for several weeks. Tens of thousands of mainly young Nigerians took to the streets and, you know, leading to the disbandment of the police unit. So many youth are now heartbroken, but some of them are preparing for crucial state elections that will be held at the end of March. So what I really found shocking about this election is how quickly the U.S. State Department congratulated Tinubu as the electoral victor and hailed a, quote, competitive election that, quote, represents a new period of for Nigerian politics and democracy, end quote. And that's in stark contrast to how independent election observers around the world responded to Nigeria's election, where many have called for a recall as corruption and voter suppression was rampant. So I'm looking forward to asking that question to our guests. So Here's my take. Nigeria is at an important democratic crossroads and youth will be critical for its path forward. If they remain politically engaged, they may yet reshape how the country is governed. So looking forward to watching that closely. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Taya, thanks for that. I guess this is a good time to introduce our guest who's been thoroughly covering the election fallout. Ayesha Sori is the director of the Executive Vice President's Office at the Open Societies Foundation. She's a Nigerian lawyer, author, international development consultant, journalist, and politician known for her work on good governance, gender equality, women in the economy, and political participation and ending violence against women in, in Nigeria. She's the author of the book, Love Does Not Win Elections. Aisha, it's so great to have you on Altamar. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And I think I just have to point out, just because Nigerian journalists are very jealous of their space or protective, that I'm not a journalist, just an opinionated Nigerian who writes lots of articles. That's it. <laughs> Well, I've been to Nigeria many times, and it's hard not to find an opinionated Nigerian. So exactly. you're, I'm sure you're in good comp. I'm sure you're in good company. Yes. But let's start. You've written extensively about the disputed Nigerian elections, but let's start first with some basics so our listeners can understand. Despite being Africa's largest economy, one of the world's top oil producers, Nigeria is in an economic crisis. How did this all happen? Well, it's a mix of different things. I mean, of course, there's the pandemic, but there's also self-inflicted wounds. Mainly over the last eight years, we've had a president with a status outdated mentality 
of managing an economy. Uh, and so he's also run one of the most decentralized executive teams ever, in not in a good sense, but in the sense that you have different agencies, ministries not speaking to each other, not collaborating. So for example, Nigeria is in the grip of a very ruinous, painful Naira, which is our currency, Naira redesign policy, which the Central Bank of Nigeria launched towards the end of last year, without ever even engaging the Minister of Finance about the impact or about even the plans. And Buhari also has a very smart, capable economic advisory council that he just doesn't listen to. Tell us a little bit about this cashless economy issue that we're reading about in the newspapers. Exactly. So in October last year, October 2022, the Central Bank of Nigeria introduced what they said was going to be a Naira redesign policy, but people are calling it a Naira confiscation policy because what happened was they took three of the largest notes, so the 1,000 Naira notes, the 500 Naira notes, and the 200 Naira notes, and basically just changed the colors. And then they mopped up about 3 trillion Naira, but only printed a couple of billion. So not even meeting by half the Naira needs of the citizens. And so, and this was done on the eve of the presidential and gubernatorial elections. We've had one, one side of the elections on February 25th. So many saw the timing of the Naira redesign policy and the Naira confiscation policy as designed to thwart politicians who were known to have stockpiled Naira, the old Naira notes, in preparation for being able to compromise the elections, you know, pay off voters and things like that. Now, with the court's involvement, with party members, including the president's own party, taking the president and the central bank to court, the Supreme Court stepped in and held that the Naira redesign policy was illegal, even though, of course, what the central bank claimed that it was trying to do was move towards a cashless society. But we don't have the infrastructure for that, unfortunately. And so we have a serious cash crunch where people are lining up for days outside ATMs. It's impossible to get more than a few thousand naira at a time. And we're a very cash-based society. Let's move to politics. and But before we even jump to the issue of the recent elections, tell us a little bit about some of the structural political issues that our listeners need to think about when trying to understand Nigeria's political climate? Sure. And the three things I would say have dominated Nigeria's political economy since independence. And Chidi Odinkalu, a professor at Tufts, and I point that out in another book that we wrote together called Too Good to Die, Third Term and the Myth of the Indispensable Man in Africa. And we point out that one of the things that dominate our political economy is the sense of political equity and political succession that's typically dictated by our very complex ethnic and faith mosaic and the need to distribute power and its benefits fairly. The second thing is national stability, which the the military men like to call non-negotiable unity. Nigeria fought a very bitter civil war between 1967 and 1970 that many say still leaves many unresolved tensions within the country. We've also suffered from multiple insurgencies over time from the Niger Delta, where Nigeria's oil wealth is, is centered, who are looking for resource control, as it was called, to Boko Haram's war over 10 years and counting in the Northeast, where they are trying to create, according to them, an Islamic state. And even more lately, we have the indigenous people of Biafra, known as IPOP, who are also waging a secessionist war back in the Southeast, where the bitter civil war was fought in the late 60s and early 70s. And then third, 
is the political ethics and the containment of corruption. So every government since 1966 and the first coup is coming in to sort out corruption. But in fact, what we find is that everybody's working actually really hard to deepen it. To be fair, not sure that the current president-elect actually promised to tackle corruption during his own campaigns. So Nigeria is a huge country, of course, and it seems endlessly divided. And you've talked a little bit about the religious, tribal and linguistic fault lines. Are are those kind of one of the reasons for the deep rooted corruption? Can you kind of lay out a little uh, a, a map of, of the country and, and its divisions? Sure. I mean, we have Oh, at least 250 ethnic groups in Nigeria, and would say that roughly the main religions um, is Islam, Christianity, and then traditionalist, who the latter making up people say less than 1%. So you'd say predominantly we're Christian and Muslim. Um, so, but aside that, this whole idea that we must balance federal character because that was the crux of the negotiation of independence from the British pre-1960, and as I mentioned, has dominated our political economy over the last 60-odd years. But aside from corruption that's enabled by the sense that, you know, it's better to just have people who are representative as opposed to competent people, that leads me to what I would say is one of the greatest problems that we have, which is just incompetence in government, ineffectiveness, where you have people who have no business in government there to represent their region or their religion, to satisfy this political representation that's required by the constitution. And, you know, people always point out that why are we only looking to balance, you know, federal character when it comes to ethnicity and religion, but not to gender or to youth, because youth make up 70% of the population, gender almost 50% if we look at the data from the voter register. But somehow when you look at government, it's predominantly old men. Um, the second thing that's a real challenge is the there's just no rule of law. There's, there's no sense of access to justice. And so people find that they have to self-help, resort to self-help to get any justice, which is where you find the tensions from the Boko Haram, from the Niger Delta, and even now from IPOP. There's all just the sense that without being violent, without contesting uh, with arms, you can't get any justice in Nigeria. And then finally, there's just the governance structure where people point to the fact that our constitution, the 1999 constitution, is really an updated version of the 1979 constitution, which was given to us by the military in quotes. And so people point out that although we say we're a federation or operating a federal system, we're actually a very unitary tight unitary system where the president has lots of powers, as you can see by the long list, what's called the exclusive list in the constitution that sort of says, here are the things that only the federal government can, can manage and make decisions on, while the rest of the state and local government look at what's at the concurrent list, which also means that the government can also look at these things. So for me, I would say in addition to you know having but we're not the only complex country. There's, you know, Indonesia, there's India. So the key thing for me are those three things that were it's incompetence, no rule of law, and the governance structure that's faulty. Aisha, you've been following the presidential election. So have I in anticipation for this podcast. What happened? Can you give us some flavor of the three front runners? There's a lot of controversy. And, and also let us know who they represent, who votes for each, and, and where they stand in the political map. Sure. I mean, of course, many people, thank you for that question. And it's, it's very tricky. We, we've, 
we've had with the 2023 presidential election what many think might be the most fiercely contested presidential elections ever um, but some say definitely since 1999 because we had we have a time limited incumbent president buhari who for the first time since 2003 would not be on the ballot and so we have Although we have 18 parties, we had three major front runners, Atikwa Abubakar, who is from the north, um, Peter Obi, who's from the east, and Tinubu, Bola Tinubu, who's from the southwest. And so that they roughly represent the three main pillars of Nigeria's ethnicity. So although we have 250, the Igbo, Peter Obi, the House of Fulani, uh, Atikwa Abubakar, and the Yoruba represented by Tinubu, largely make up the main uh, ethnic groups in Nigeria. And so they represented that and many people were worried about what that meant. We've had really a divisive campaign around ethnicity and of course Tinubu decided to pick a Muslim vice president even though he's Muslim as well breaking what had been a, a loose precedent that Nigerians had followed since 1999 that if you have if you have a Christian president you have a northern vice president and vice versa but Tinubu didn't pick that and he won. So in terms of mapping as individuals you'd say that they're almost all, you know, interlinking in a way. Atiku uh, was vice president. Tinubu and Obi used to be governors of their state. Atiku and Tinubu are in their 70s and they mirror each other in terms of, you know, what their positives and, and negatives might be from a wide network across the country to allegations around corruption and just the state of their, their health and, and their age. Obi's appeal, obviously, is being younger at 61. It's his personality more than anything, his accessibility, his track record, his willingness to use the courts over and over again to get justice, which I've mentioned already is some, a sticky point for most Nigerians who can't access justice. So he represents somebody who tries to force the system to work the way it's supposed to. So I'm, I'm dying to ask you about the youth, but before that, you know, I, I, I want to go on about the election a little bit. And it was obviously a hugely contested election. Many mm -hmm. independent observers from around the world condemned the elections as unfair and corrupt. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, the U.S. State Department really rushed to congratulate Tinubu. So, you know, what is going on? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean... I mean Many people are disappointed at how quickly the international community and, and observers, you know, the ones who did congratulate the president-elect did so because, yes, many consider the elections to be flawed. And it's fundamentally, of course, there are those who say, yes, you know, democracy is a delicate balance, you know, reliant on the perception of fairness and transfer of power. And many people don't want to delegitimize elections for fear of the contagion of coups that are going around West Africa right now. But that said... The elections were highly irregular and it's really the fault of INEC, which is the Independent National Electoral Commission, which is the election management body for Nigeria, because they, with the new electoral act that was, a, was um, signed into law in early 2022, set the tone for the high expectations that Nigerians had that we would have clean elections where usually one of the sticky points for us is the collation of the results. So you tell people to stay at their polling units and count the, count the ballots and, you know, and make a record of who won in their polling unit. And then suddenly when it's collation time, nobody has any sense of how those numbers from the polling units added up to make the winner. And so we spent a lot of money, millions and millions on what we're calling, what we call the BVAS, which is short for the bimodal voter accreditation system that was supposed to be a you know, technology that would make the way we vote accreditation of voters, transfer of the results. But when it came to the presidential results, 
suddenly BVAS wasn't working. It had worked for results from National Assembly elections that were happening simultaneously. But when it came to the presidential results, they suddenly weren't working. And there was like a block of time on Saturday, February 25th, when nobody knew what was going on. And obviously the results were not being uploaded. And many people think that was a period when there was some sort of manipulation. And it's according to INEC, they didn't upload because they were getting attacks from hackers. And many people don't believe that story, especially when INEC itself came out weeks to the election to say that they had spent $25 million only on anti-hacking software. So people are like, why didn't it work? So again, the suspicion around BVAS is going to move towards the next elections that are happening in a week's time on March 18th. And so it's anybody's guess whether BVAS will actually work for those elections or not. So in, in all, a big shame, uh, hopefully, the you know the contestants uh, who are Tiku and uh, and Obi are contesting the elections on the basis of fraud. We're not sure what how the courts are going to decide. We don't have any precedent in Nigeria for uh, the courts of um, overturning a presidential election. We're looking to Kenya, who has had that. Um, precedent set that maybe this is something that will happen this time around, but many people are not happy with the way the elections took place. Yeah, and I, I want to turn it to youth now because um, obviously N- Nigeria has one of the world's largest youth populations. Unfortunately, there are many educated youth have left Nigeria. There's been a huge brain drain. Um, however, I mean, there's still so, so many left and, and they really seem to be a constituency to be reckoned with. Um, so Tell us more about where do you see this going, especially in light of what you said, which is a lot of older men in government and yet this huge youth population. And, and tell us a bit about that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the youth, we, we, we all put a lot of faith and uh, hope on the on the youth turnout during the elections. I have to say, though, that the voter turnout was worse than it was in 2019. Um, we've been steadily dropping and the voter turnout February 25th was only 27%, making many people to question our numbers, you know, like, are we really 200 odd million people? Because otherwise, why despite the fact that our voter register keeps going up, number of people registered keeps going up, we're finding fewer and fewer people coming out to vote. And it's tied to, you know, people just not trusting the system and trusting the the way the election management body works. But back to the youth, starting from the end of, uh, I think, 2020 with the End SARS movement. And SARS stands for the Special Anti-Robbery Squad Unit of the Police. They're supposed to be an elite squad focused on you know, preventing robbery, but that turned out to actually be armed robbers themselves. Uh, Tons and tons of stories, years and years worth of stories of Nigerians being dealt with by SARS. And the the MSARS, MSARS had been trending for a couple of years until it spilled out into into the streets at the end of 2020 with the MSARS movement that resulted in, you know, people getting shot at and killed at the Leki Toll Gate in Lagos. And so since that time, um, youth have sort of stayed active, sort of understanding from that point, you know, what happened with their protest, how much they got out of it, despite the fact that it ended badly. They did get quite a number of concessions from the government, including panels and committees that sat in at least half the states in Nigeria, where people, victims got, you know, some sort of award. People who were found guilty were recommended for punishment. So they could see what comes from organizing collectively. And that's the energy that has gone in the 2023 presidential elections towards Peter Obi, the younger of the of the three main candidates. 
the one that we mentioned at 61. And really, he's gone from being somebody who was laughed at when he declared his intention to run from a non-mainstream party, the Labour Party, in May 2022. He was accused of not having structures, which means basically a party that has a national spread. And he's gone from that in nine months to winning 12 states, really on the backs of young Nigerians who who have sort of taken his campaign up for, for themselves. So it's really been amazing. And we're hoping that on the March 18th elections that we'll see a repeat and hopefully better voter turnout. We're still trying to understand why the voter turnout was so low. I mean, Peter Obi has been covered a lot in in the international press and for yes. good reason, as you said, because he's come from nowhere and people were laughing at him. And mm-hmm. But he's galvanized sort of younger people and and uh, even though the turnout was disappointing where where does he go from here what 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 is obi's future well it's, it's really hard to tell and of course many people are, have different types of predictions about what will happen even to him or even to the party depending on what the outcome of the of the election petitions are going to be but i think at least in terms of the energy that has remained it very well could have happened that after he lost the presidential elections on February 25th, that he would have gone back into his shell or that obedience, who are the people, his supporters, that's what they're called, a take on his name, Obi. They could have also gone back in. Many people are disappointed, but many of them are channeling their you know, anger into energy around saying, let's get some states, because they understand that that's how Nigerian political structure and economy works. Like you have to say, the PDP, which is the party that ruled Nigeria for 16 years between 1999 and 2015, they have X number of states. We now say that the APC, the All Progressive Congress, which gained power in the center in 2015, they have X states. We want to be able to say Labour does. So let's see what happens. Labour has gone from having zero members in the National Assembly, which is a federal lawmaking body, to having, I think, about at least 10, 11. So they've made a lot of strides. If Obi sticks with the Labour Party, or at least sticks with his obedience and sort of keeps building that kind of formidable movement, because they're they're beyond the party, that's the truth. Obedience are beyond parties. Many people voted differently. Many people who are actually maybe historically one party or the other all switched to Obi as an individual. So I think his star power um, will probably go with him wherever he goes. There's no way to say right now whether he'll stay with the Labour Party or not, but hopefully he will and build that into something that he can, you know, make a repeat attempt if things don't go well at the tribunal in 2027. And you you recently wrote about the, the widespread, quote, vote with your stomach reality. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Explain that. And, and what can be done to end this vote trading? Yeah, so sure. We've we've had different names for, for vote trading in Nigeria, but the latest iteration is what we call stomach infrastructure, where people are saying, you know what, we don't want road infrastructure, we don't want school infrastructure, what we need is, you know, food in our bellies. And so that's sort of like a way of framing, we want money or we want cash gifts or we want, you know, sometimes even food gifts, um, which speaks to the stomach reality. Like many countries, it's against the law to buy votes, but despite all sorts of innovation that the election management body INEC have come up with to prevent vote trading, whether it's saying people shouldn't take their phones into the polling units and they can't take pictures of their ballot paper to share for those who increasingly want some affirmation that you did vote for them before they they, 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 they pay you up for the votes. But the truth is, I think, I tend to think that the focus on uh, stomach infrastructure and vote trading is a distraction from the fact that there are many fundamental 
more insidious problems with election integrity in Nigeria than vote trading. Um, the, the neutrality of the election management body, the accountability of the personnel within the election management body, um, all that is, is missing. It's also what I mentioned earlier, collation just being a black hole, and then also secrecy of the ballot. If we could make ballots more secret, if we could take away this ability for agents of other parties to come around pulling, pulling stalls, and boots and see what, how people vote, all those things would make it easier and more practical to stop vote, vote trading. But right now what we do is try to appeal to people's conscience and say, oh, you know, don't take that ex naira, don't take that bag of rice because it's just, you know, it's not enough, it's not worth your vote. And it only gives you, uh, you know, temporary relief when you have four years between now and the next election. But people are like, you know, the whole entire Nigerian political system is highly monetized. And so why shouldn't we get our cuts as well? So I think, that's where we need to look at the things that will help make it harder without attacking vote trading in a, in, a, in a frontal way, which is what we do right now. Aisha, we are running out of time. This is so fascinating, but I have two more questions for you. And let's zoom out a little bit and, and talk sure. about, we talked a little bit about the, the relationship with the US, but where does Nigeria stand in this power struggle right now between the US and China and Russia? Well, I would say honestly that we're, we're staying out of it, like most African countries are. But the truth is also that Nigeria hasn't paid much attention to foreign policy. Um, I would say maybe since the Abbasanjo administration ended in 2007, um, Buhari's first ambassador to the U.S. after he won in 2015 was a retired justice of the Supreme Court that was, he must have been over 70, who he picked because he had given a dissenting opinion in, in Buhari's favor in one of his petitions. Um, I would say when it comes to trade, we definitely are trading a lot more with China. They're our biggest trading partner, at least of 2022, sorry, 2020. Um, with the US, it's more like a dysfunctional love and hate relationship where those who are outside power, you know, crave and use any relationship with the US government as you know, as a weapon um, of affirmation. But once the same people get into power, as we saw with the APC, and start being criticized for their policies, they suddenly remember that the US is imperial. And Russia, I think, really, it's more a distant relationship. There used to be a more closer relationship um, around the time when we were industrializing, building different steel plants. Uh, but right now, I think Russia is really pretty much for the arms. But is anyone's guess if we the next president will have a more robust foreign policy than the Buhari administration did? In a, in a couple of words, what do you foresee for Nigeria in the next five, ten years? Will this finally be the crisis that reads, leads to reform? Yeah, I, honestly, I think it's really hard. It's too hard to tell. But I will say that there's no crisis in Nigeria that we cannot waste. So we've had many crises that haven't led to the reforms that you would think we would have. And then second, I would say that Wherever we end up, it will be driven by the younger generation. They will still continue to be the determining factor on, on where the country goes and what kind of reforms we get if they push hard enough for those reforms. Aisha Sodi, thank you so much for joining us in Altamar. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Peter Tao, I we forget about young countries after living in this country for so long, where our president is is quite old and our leaders in Congress and, and basically the, the general population kind of skews older. And I was very encouraged by um, the fact that Aisha has, you know, hope that there will be a generational change. But if you look at the demographic of the candidates now, it doesn't seem to be happening just yet. I mean, absolutely. The the young candidate is 61 years old, so um, we haven't gotten to a generational change. But it's also a country that 
respects its elders, uh, respects people people who have had experience. So you know, I I think we have to balance balance that off too. Look, I, 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 there's no doubt that Nigeria has changed a lot since the time. Some and some things for worse, and some things for better. But it's still the endemic problem of regionalism, ethnicity, religion, and corruption. I was just struck by you know how uh, you know when speaking to my clients over 25 years ago, they they would have said exactly the same thing that Aisha said today, and it's just incredible that we're still at that point, and history just repeats itself, and it seems very difficult to get beyond. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did not leave this conversation in an optimistic um, way. I, I think, yes, it's a very young country, and yes, there's a lot of potential, but A, you know, people have left, a lot of young, educated people have left the country, and, you know, B, the people that have stayed, even though, you know, they seem to be supporting the quote-unquote young candidate, Obi, who's, you know, 61, Um uh, there's still it, it doesn't seem to have done a lot in in this election and it you know as, as she ended with which is we don't seem to you know ever um take take use of a crisis so i'm i'm leaving sort of a little concern about the country going forward so um i hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast we certainly did um you can listen to all tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us on apple podcasts you can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter where we give you an analysis of global trends and we will see you next time <laughs> <laughs>